Let's start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you formerly, you the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to, the, to you who were near, to those who were near, excuse me, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you, are, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Verse 11, as Pastor Vince would often say, therefore is there for a reason. You don't remember that one? <laughs> Bear in mind all that Paul has just finished saying. I know we start what seems to be a new section. Your Bible may have bold number on the verse or an indentation, a paragraph, however it's divided. Again, that was not there in the original manuscripts. But he's saying, you were sinners. This is the beginning of chapter 2. But God, you were wicked, verses 1 through 4. But God, being rich in his mercy, raised you up, made you alive in Christ, seated you in the heavenly places. Therefore, remember. Do not forget, in other words, about your former exclusion because you are now being saved by grace through faith. He's working to a point which will ultimately hit its climax in chapter 3, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. He's explaining what he meant by the flesh, and this is picking back up in the main point in the next verse. Really, there's ultimately two circumcisions. There's one that's done by the flesh. There's also one that is done by the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 2, 25 and 20 through 29. The important point that Paul is has always made is that fleshly circumcision has no standing before God. It doesn't make you a child of God, but those that are spiritually circumcised can rightfully claim that they are children of Abraham because we are in him. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? Well, that backs all the way back up to Genesis chapter 12. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the promises of Abraham we have in Christ Jesus, not because we're circumcised in the flesh, but because the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts, Romans 2. 
And so here Paul is calling the Ephesians back to their former days when they had no hope, they had nothing to stand on. He says that the Gentiles, that means non-Jews, when you were not in Christ were excluded, this is verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel in strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I want to take these one at a time. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, King James says, aliens. This means more than that they were not Jews. It means that they were not included in the politeia, is the Greek word, or the polity, which means God's organized worship. Consider it this way. The Gentile was excluded from God's ordinances on how to worship. They were excluded from temple worship. They were excluded from God's own Sabbath. Romans chapter 3 verse 2 tells us this. These Gentiles were deprived of all of the privileges which came about from having true worship. The Jews could experience God to some degree, but the Gentiles were not allowed to worship him in the same manner. He says, you are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. The word here is that the Gentiles were strangers to God. It does not denote, on the other hand, that they were hostile toward it does not necessarily imply that the Gentiles were not wanting to worship God. It's specifically, the way it's written in the Greek, is that they were excluded. They were not allowed to come into fellowship with God. They were excluded from those privileges, as if they had potentially wanted to be acquainted with it. Charles um, Ellicott, in his commentary, he picks up on this and points out that this word is not really aliens, and he's commenting in the King James translation, wrote many, many um, I guess about 150 years ago now, but he says the word is really alienated, quote, implying what is again and again declared to us that the covenant with Israel, as it was held in trust for the blessing of all families of the earth, so also was simply the true birthright of humanity from which mankind had fallen. He goes on, the first covenant in Scripture, Genesis 9, 8 through 17, is with the whole of the post-Diluvian race and is expressly connected with the reality of the image of God. He's talking about everyone who came from Noah and his descendants were given this same blessing, Genesis chapter 9. The succeeding covenants, as with Abraham, Moses, and David, all contain a promise concerning the whole race of man, hence the Gentiles as the utterances of prophecy showed more and more clearly while the ages rolled on, were exiles from what should have been their home, and their call into the church of Christ was a restoration of God's wandering children. In other words, God always was to include the Gentiles. You can look down at verse 19 of chapter 1 and see the same theme all through these two chapters of Ephesians, chapter 2 and 3. And I don't like to normally get ahead too far ahead in terms of verses, but for continuity's sake, skip down to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So I'm just setting the tone. We're talking about the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which in other generations, in other words, Old Testament, was not made known to the sons of men as it has 
now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles, now we're getting a clarification on what that mystery is. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's this mean? Well, basically, Paul is clarifying his allusion to this mystery of Christ. And he's talked about this in Colossians chapter 1, 27, Colossians 2, 2, Colossians 4, 3, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. He's talked about it in Romans 16, 25. On and on he talks in his epistles about this mystery of Christ. Bear in mind that Ephesians is probably one of the last, if not the last, epistle that he wrote. And he's now talking and kind of revealing this mystery that the Holy Spirit has given him. And he gives us a little clarity on what he meant by the mystery of Christ. And he's saying that basically the Gentiles were always meant to be fellow heirs. But it was only revealed by the Holy Spirit to him. Because see, he was a legalist in his early life, wasn't he? A Pharisee of the Pharisees. He held the letter of the law. He was on his way to Damascus to drag the Christians and put them in jail. But God. Now, of course, this mystery of Christ is really no mystery to God, for he is all-knowing. Rather, it was hidden from man. Prophets in the Old Testament picked up on this and spoke about this, the strangers being included in the promise of God. But as I've often said before, I don't think that each and every prophet fully understood exactly what they wrote. I believe that, in a sense, many of them were being obedient in writing down what God told them to write, and that later we get clarification through the Holy Spirit. Here's a freebie for you, off topic, well, related, but off notes. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us today. You want to know why I search the Scriptures? Because how many thousands of years did the keepers of God's law have their eyes hidden from things? And the Holy Spirit came and revealed it. You know, there's a treasure trove of information that I believe until the very moment God comes back. And even perhaps when we get into heaven, he's going to say, it was right there in my word all along. Were you looking? Were you looking? Search his scripture. Let me just show you a quick survey of the, of the scriptures pre-ascension of Christ. Genesis 12, 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's speaking that, of course, to Abraham. Isaiah 14.1. Here's an example of a prophet that may not have fully known what he was saying. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land. We're talking about a future event of God's chosen people, the Jews essentially coming back into Israel. The verse goes on, then strangers will join them, who might that be, and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Ezekiel 47, 22, you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst. The aliens get part in the inheritance. Who bring forth sons in your midst and they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. 
John 10, 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of his fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who on earth might Jesus be talking about? You know, God did not change his mind after Jesus died and said, well, my son's blood, I guess it was more powerful than I thought. I might as well include the Gentiles. You know, his plan before creation was to give us an inheritance. Let us also consider and not neglect that woven into the lineage of Jesus Christ, but not only of Christ, of David, of Moses, were non-Jews. Think about Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. How did she make it into the lineage? Nothing but the grace. Ruth, Tamar, not to mention, let us not neglect the entire book of Jonah. We often lose that, don't we? It's a story about a man that got swallowed by a fish, right? Going to a people that were not included in the inheritance. They had no ordinances of worship. God wanted to save them. You know, the Old Testament is not outdated. It's not irrelevant. It was written before Christ. That's why we call it the Old. But I just assume and prefer to call it the Bible, God's Word. There's one theme in both. That is redemption for all mankind, both Jew and stranger, as it is written. And this mystery was only given because Jesus ascended to heaven and sent his spirit, that same spirit that lives inside of you that can give you understanding of his word. Now back to Ephesians chapter 2. We next see in 12 that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Again, here's another word saying that they were without the knowledge of without a share in the covenants of promise. Not that they were necessarily not wanting it, but that they were not included in. They had no knowledge of it. They had no hope. Now, this does not mean that they were not physically capable of having a hope. It's talking about a salvific hope, about salvation. Of They had no reason to hope. They had no understanding. They didn't know about an afterlife and resurrection from death to life. They lacked a spiritual certainty as we have a hope. They did not have it. And lastly, they were without God in the world. The word is atheos. I wonder what word we get from that. Without God. Anti-God. A-theos. That is, in Paul's view, those that have no true knowledge of God. Now, agnostics, they like to differentiate themselves between agnosticism and atheism, but in reality, both are without a true knowledge of God by the strict definition are both atheists, according to God's word. But I can't think of a more miserable climax to be without God, to be in the very world that God created, to see all of God's creation and the beauty all around you with the intricacies of life that he holds together in the palm of his hand and yet, to be without any evidence of his favor and his blessing and his love. Oh, I think the worst accusation would be to be without God. I mean, it really takes willful ignorance to an absolutely unrelatable level, doesn't it? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, that blood. Peter calls it precious blood, 1 Peter 1.19. 
It's not meaning that it's precious to us, but it better still be precious to you. What it means is that it costs God something. You know what it cost him? His life. He had to spill his very blood, that perfect lamb, lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world by the blood of Christ. He's atoned for your sins. He opened up an uninhibited way for you to approach God. By the blood of Christ, you became entitled to all the privileges of His Son. In Christ Jesus, it's by that blood that you can enter in boldly. You know, before it was only the priest that could come near to the mercy seat on which the symbol of God's presence would rest. There was the mercy seat, and they would, you know, they would sacrifice a goat for the priest's sins and the, a bull for the whole congregation and they would take some blood of it and they would sprinkle it around on the mercy seat. This is what the high priest would approach. They would pour it out before God. You know, now you're permitted to approach the mercy seat in Christ because that blood of the perfect one has been sprinkled on the mercy seat. That shedding of that blood is made a way by which the Gentiles and the Jews may approach God, and it's by that offering that we are led to seek God. I want you to understand and know that the Gentiles that are without Christ, and because circumcision means nothing before God of hands, the circumcision of hands means nothing before God, that both the Gentiles and the Jews that are not in Christ Jesus are as far off as they ever were that day that Adam sinned and disobeyed God. There was that chasm. Oh, Adam... Where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? This woman you gave to me. Eve, what have you done? That serpent made me do it. What happened that day? God that used to walk in the cool of the day with his very creation that represented his image had to withdraw and remove himself. In fact, he kicked man out of the garden. Said, I don't even want him to get near that fruit which will give him everlasting life. Or Let's kick him out. We're going to put angels around it. And God retreated because he could no longer be on the face of the earth. We talked about this, was it in Sunday school last week? I don't remember what the context was. Oh, it was the abortion, the prayer for pro-life last Sunday. Louis mentioned this in his prayer and then again somebody else did. When Cain killed his brother Abel, God said that the ground was crying out to him. There was a stench over all the earth. Instantly, sin had filled it and corrupted it. And God removed himself, but by God, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to spill his precious blood. Could God return? And not could he only return to walk with us in the cool of the day? He lives inside of us, which is an experience that perhaps Adam and Eve never even had. Now, I know if I go on that I'm not going to be able to finish it. For he himself is our peace. who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. 
Christ himself is the irene. It's the Greek word. It's used here to speak of salvation. Jesus is our peace. He actually is our peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For it, is, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Did you catch that? Peace through the blood. There's that blood again. Peace through the blood. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. That blood is requisite for salvation. Again, 14, for he himself was our peace who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier dividing wall by abolishing his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In the temple, you should know that between the court of Gentiles and the court of the women, there was this physical barrier. There was a wall that did not allow the Gentiles to enter in. Okay? There was an actual wall of separation between the Jew and the Gentile based solely on circumcision of the flesh in birthright. And so it's pretty, obviously that, it's pretty obviously that that is what Paul is referencing here. If, it's, if he was writing Ephesians in 1990, he might have made reference to um, the, the wall of Berlin. But rather, we're talking about the Gentiles not having access to the presence of God. That's what this whole metaphor and that's what this entire thing is about. Therefore, remember, verse 11. Remembering, you didn't have access to the presence of God. But understand that the source of contention was the fact that the Gentile did not keep the law. Again, namely circumcision, but there were many other things. The problem was they couldn't keep the law because they didn't have access to the law, did they? They had no understanding of it. So it was sort of an exclusive religion in a sense. But Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf, and since he bore the penalty for our failure to keep the law, he abolished or removed the barriers between Jew and Gentile, putting to death the source of contention. He actually took down the complete source. You know, we often like to get to the, we talk about getting to the root of the problem, don't we? There's two ways to treat something. You can put a band-aid on it, or in the case of, pardon the metaphor, there's a lot of it going around, seems to be in our fellowship, but cancer. Do you want to just treat it topically, or do you want to go in and get it out? That's what Christ Jesus did. He came to treat the source of the cancer, not to slap a Band-Aid upside of it. He fulfilled the law and abolished and removed that wall in its entirety and said, I want the Jews and Gentiles to live in peace together. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now, this is the same Greek word in verse 14, but here it's pretty clear that it's speaking about the two parties being made in peace together, Jew and Gentile. Now, I came across a, a commentary that said early Christians called themselves a third race or a new race. In other words, they recognized that they were neither Jew nor Gentile, but created new in Christ Jesus, and that was their identity a new man embracing all that they had in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, 28 and 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are either Abraham's, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. There is no exclusion in Christ Jesus. Either you are made into a new man, or you are not truly in Christ. There is no room in Christ for segregation. Either you are a new man or you are not truly in Christ. There is no room in Christ for 
prejudice. Either you are a new man or you are not truly in Christ. This is fundamental Christianity. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth, will not perish but have everlasting life, John 3.16. That's inclusive. We all descended from two beings that were made in the image of God, and God loves everyone. Simple stuff. A plus B equals C. Revelation 7, 9 and 10 says, After these things I looked, this is John, and behold, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb of all nations. Do you fully understand that Christ came to tear down not just the dividing wall between the Jew and Gentile, but all divisions between his people? This is not just a tender promise about everyone setting aside doctrines and getting along for Jesus' sake. Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 is about something much deeper, much more glorious. If we who have been made in the same image, born into the world with the same problem, find the same redemption through the same faith in our one Jesus Christ, how could we not draw near to each other as same members of his family? And yet Sunday morning may well be the most segregated day of the week. As has been said, this is not, you know, peoples with light and dark skin tones worshiping together for so-called diversity's sake. It's about unity as one in Christ Jesus. The context is of bringing all of God's people into the presence of God, even those that have been at one point alienated are welcome. You see, our commonality is not our language. It's not any physical characteristic. What brings us together is the blood of Christ Jesus. And let me just give you something to consider. Next time you act out on prejudice or next time you see anyone acting out at any sort of prejudice, then you're nullifying the work of the cross because Christ came to tear that dividing wall down. They sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9. Verse 16 of Ephesians 2, And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. It may be of interest that in the original, the word used only here and in one other place, Colossians chapter 1, is this compound word signifying not to conciliate, not as in concile, but it, re- it really means to reconcile, implying that they once had it. There was once a proper unity, but it was separated in the sin of man. So he's, we're, we're reuniting those things that we once lost in the garden. that he might reconcile us both. Do you know there was a day where blacks and whites would intermarry without any stigma? A few thousand years ago, Moses, it's been thought by commentators, not that he was white, but he would be a lighter skin, perhaps middle brown, took on perhaps an Ethiopian woman. Now, his sister and... (laughs) His brother 
also condemned the marriage, but we're not exactly sure the circumstances and what all was involved with that. That's to say there were some that also operated in the flesh and missed God. But I will say that there was a time at some point where people of different skin tones would marry without anyone thinking anything of it. That's how we got all the different shades of skin. Okay, this is simple genetics, really. Whites, blacks, browns, reds, yellows, all in between come from two people, whether you like it or not. So Christ came to reconcile that unity we once had. Properly means reconcile. Again, brings out this profound principle that we were all unified and was only marred and broken by sin. You know, had, had Adam not sinned, there would be no Jew. Dwell on that one. There would be no Gentile. May we consider that the highly priest, high priestly prayer of John 17 we were looking at in Sunday school this morning. Jesus asked that they may be one even as we are one. That's not just some flowery prayer. It was a declaration of Christ while knowing the result of his work of the cross was saying, God, I want them to walk in the same unity in which we walk in. I want them to be united together in that same bonding unit of love. You know, and it's because God reconciled us to himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, and in light of Jesus reconciling us together to form one new man, that we are, you can, this is extra credit for you, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. That is, anytime you see an instance where two people are not getting along, and I'm not just talking about skin tones or religious affiliation. Talking about any time you see a brother and sister, especially in Christ, not getting along, but even outside of it, we have the responsibility as believers to actually minister to them reconciliation, as Jesus did to us. You see two dogs fighting. You know what? They say, let them fight it out, don't get in the middle, right? You don't want to get caught up in that mess. But in Christ Jesus, you get to go grab both the collars and say, enough, Sam, you were created in the image of God. Lee Her, you were created in the image of God. Now get along for Christ's sake. You are the minister of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Let's pray. I'm going to stop there. I know I want to get through the end of the chapter, but we will pick up next week just the same.